All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everyone uh, this morning. Thank you for being with us uh, and worshiping this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and just want to say uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, our scripture reading uh, for this morning uh, comes from John chapter 2. And uh, this is, we're continuing our look at Jesus and the Gospels, and uh, we're going to be looking at the first part of John chapter 2 this morning. So this is the word of the Lord from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And actually, as I think about that text, uh, I don't sure whether to say amen afterwards or, or cheers, uh, bottoms up. Jesus has done this first miracle of making a massive amount of wine. I mean, can you believe that this is Jesus' first miracle? I mean, he doesn't heal a child who is about to die. He doesn't raise someone from the dead. He doesn't walk on water or, or even feed 5,000 people with the lunch of one boy. No, the very first miracle that Jesus does is turn water into wine. Um, if you were Jesus, uh, what would have your first miracle been, do you think? I mean, I know some of you, this might have been it. Uh, you might have done water and wine as your first miracle. But, but when, you, when we think about Jesus, what do we tend to have in our mind? What picture comes to our mind when we think about him? Do we think about him turning water into wine at a party, at a wedding celebration, enjoying a, a celebration with his family and friends? I think most of us, and myself included at times, when we start to think about Jesus, the picture we have in our mind uh, can be a lot more like this. Uh, watch, watch this clip. Hello. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. Rule number one, spend all of your free time in church. Rule number two, you're not allowed to have any fun unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is. Rule number three, Wear t-shirts with my face on it. Rule number four, always smile and act happy. And finally, wear a stylish beard like mine. <laughs> well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. 
Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. <laughs> James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. <laughs> Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. <laughs> I mean, is this how we can think of Jesus? I mean, these videos obviously are, are intentionally an irreverent caricature of who Jesus is. But isn't this how we picture him? Kind of stoic, morally keeping tabs, a little standoffish, judgmental, concerned with the rules. It was actually a church in North Carolina that they put these videos together along with several others uh, in a kind of a series to, to point out the fact that the picture that we often have in our minds, the stereotypes about Jesus are so far from the person that we find in the Bible. Jesus began his ministry at a party, making wine. Making wine because they had run out of wine, whether due to poor planning or if there were just some overly thirsty guests. John doesn't tell us why they ran out. But Jesus' first miracle is at a party, making wine. And, and just as we, before we get fully into the story, I just want to acknowledge that many of us, you know, as we come to this text in the world of, of the Jesus Seminar and the Da Vinci Code, um, I'm rightly asked the question, now, now, did this really happen? I mean, did Jesus actually do this? Or, or is this just a story that, that the church made up? And, and these are important questions for us to ask as we think about the Bible. Um, but I think one of the greatest confirmations that this story is true is the fact that uh, the question just, who would have made this up? I mean, if you were making up stories about Jesus and especially about his first miracle, is, is this the story you would have made up, turning 150 gallons of water into wine? I mean, who would have possibly chosen this as his first miracle if it wasn't true? Have you pictured Jesus as the life of the party? I mean, imagine if you're at a friend's wedding and, and they're hosting this wedding reception and the, and the wine ran out, or, or maybe wine's not your thing. Maybe the, the steak ran out. And I say the steak because, you know, if you have an option of steak or chicken, the chicken never runs out, right? It's the steak that's going to run out. And, and all of a sudden, you know, there's not enough. And, and Jesus is the one who steps in and he supplies everything, all of the wine, all the food that you could need. And again, even if you don't love wine, I mean, there's something significant about wine in this text, which we'll unpack a little bit later on in the message. But why would Jesus do this? Why is this his first miracle? I think the main point of this passage is that Jesus is celebrating the joy surrounding the newness of what he is offering. This passage is about the joy surrounding the newness of what Jesus is offering. Jesus offers a new kind of everything, and he holds nothing back. Jesus offers a new kind of everything, and he holds nothing back. And so as we look at the story from John chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see kind of a window into who Jesus is, into what he came to do, and then how he makes it possible. So who Jesus is, what he came to do, and then how he makes it possible. So first, who is Jesus? In order to really answer that question, we need to step back and, and ask who John is, and, and why is he writing? Why did John write this account of who Jesus is, and, and what he did, and what it meant? And 
John was one of Jesus' apostles, one of the 12 people that Jesus chose to follow him most closely. And in fact, when you read through the Gospels, we realize that John was actually one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his three closest friends. And as John writes his account of what Jesus did and said and what it meant, he begins in John chapter 1, not with Jesus' birth or even with the beginning of his ministry, as the other Gospel writers do. John begins his Gospel with these words. He says, in the beginning... Or excuse me, he says, yeah, in the beginning was the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, he writes in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that Jesus is God from the very beginning and that as he writes his gospel and at the very end he says these words. So John is kind of bookending from John 1 to John chapter 20. The whole point of his gospel is that we would understand who Jesus is and that we would believe in him. This is what he writes in John chapter 20 verse 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing that we would believe in Jesus and that we would have life in his name. And part of the way that John helps us to see Jesus' glory, to believe in him, is to highlight seven signs all throughout his gospel that reveal, that manifest is the language here, that manifest his glory. And, and glory is someone in their, when you see them in their truest form, glory is seeing someone in their truest and fullest form. And so what is the first sign that does that for Jesus, that reveals who he is in his truest form? It's turning water into wine. Somehow th this sign of turning water into wine gives us a picture into who Jesus is in his truest and fullest form. It reveals his glory. This is probably one of Jesus' most important miracles because of this. But how does this reveal who Jesus is? Well, let's take a closer look at the story. If you, if you have a Bible um, and you look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, John tells us uh, that Jesus is at a wedding in this village of Cana. And archaeologists have identified Cana. It's a village about eight miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. Uh, Cana is about uh, eight miles to the north. And text tells us that Jesus is there with his mother along with his disciples. Now, most of us have probably been to a wedding before, and uh, we've probably all been to some good weddings, and we've probably also been to some weddings that uh, have had some chaos or crisis to them. And as someone who performs weddings on a regular basis, I, I have seen how weddings can attract crisis, whether it's the groomsman showing up late or the, uh, the ring bearer who tearfully refuses to come down the aisle with the, with the ring in the middle of the ceremony, um, or the soon-to-be in-laws fighting over last-minute details. I mean, weddings just have this way of kind of attracting crisis. But, but at least in our context— um, weddings last a day. So you have the wedding, the reception, it's kind of over. It limits the amount of time where crisis can happen. But in the first century, weddings lasted a week. I mean, so this wedding happened, and there was a week-long celebration. And, and every day, more guests would show up to the party, and the wine flowed, and the food didn't stop. And it was actually the groom's responsibility in that culture to provide for this week-long, bountiful feast. And as we find out in verse 3, this groom uh, at this wedding, um, either through lack of resources or, or poor planning or just an unexpected abundance of guests, is facing a crisis. The wine has run out. 
And this was a social disaster. I mean, it would be like attending a wedding reception today, and you show up at the, at the reception venue, and you find out that the caterer is canceled, and that the band isn't showing up. And so you're stuck drinking, you know, ice water and listening to a CD player. I mean, this is, this is a disaster. The life has just gone out of this party. And you can imagine people are starting to get kind of cranky. They're, they're looking at their watches, saying, we, we got to get out of here. This party is just dying. And so the mother of Jesus finds him and tells him, Jesus, they're, they're out of wine. And apparently she assumes that, that Jesus doesn't know this already or, or somehow she expects him to, to do something about it. Now, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet, so I don't know if Mary is thinking he's going to do a miracle here. Maybe she just says, you know, she knows that Jesus is her oldest son and maybe that he's shown himself to be resourceful. Uh, maybe he just, she wants him to, like, hey, go down to Trader Joe's and buy a couple of cases of the two-buck chuck and, and bring it back to the party. We don't know exactly what Mary has in mind here, but it's clear she expects Jesus to do something about this. But Jesus' response here is a little bit odd. And look at verse 4. She said, you know, it says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So first Jesus says, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? Some translations might have the word dear, dear woman. That's not in the original text. They try to soften that a little bit. Now, is Jesus just kind of being rude to his mom here, or, or what's going on? Um, other translations have, you know, woman, you have no claim on me, or woman, why do you involve me? And it's important to recognize that this, this word woman here in the original language, it doesn't carry a derogatory or, or kind of a demeaning tone. It's kind of an expression of, of polite distance. But also later on in John, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is, is dying on the cross, he addresses Mary with the same word, woman. And it's, a, it's in a moment of deep affection and love. So he isn't demeaning his mother here. However, the question itself, what does this have to do with me, is a bit confrontational. And Jesus seems to be saying, look, uh, no one has an inside track with me. Not, not even my mom, at the end of the day, has an inside track with me. But what's even more puzzling, though, is what Jesus says next. He says, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? <laughs> my hour has not yet come to do a miracle? I mean, that doesn't seem quite right, because then he's going to do a miracle in a second. So it's not as though Jesus is saying, well, I'm not going to do a miracle, but then, well, okay, I guess I will do a miracle. What does he mean by my hour has not yet come? Well, this language of hour all throughout John's gospel indicates the, the culminating event of Jesus' life, his crucifixion. See, Jesus knows with this initial miracle that he starts the clock counting down to the cross. More on that in a moment. But back to the story. Look at verse 5. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Mary, it seems, she remembers, I mean, she remembers the angel. She remembers the dream. She remembers Jesus going to the temple. She knows that there's something special about her son. Now, it can seem maybe a bit presumptive that she just tells the servants, you know, he's going to do something, just do whatever he tells them. But I, I think what Mary is saying here is she's not being manipulative. She's not being presumptive. She just, she knows that Jesus will take care of this. Uh, in, in his time and in his way. And so her statement of do whatever they tell you, I think it's a, not a statement of manipulation, but a statement of trust. She has confidence in her son. 
And then John tells us something that if we didn't already kind of know the story, the flow of the story, just imagine for a moment we're in this, this moment, you don't know how the story ends. John inserts a fact here that's kind of odd. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And the next thing that John tells us, oh, and by the way, there were six stone water jars used for ritual purification. Um, okay. And then apparently the jars were empty, and Jesus says to the servants, go fill up these jars. And, and I got to wonder, what were the servants thinking in this moment? I mean, re- imagine this. There's a crisis. They've run out of wine. People are probably scrambling. They're trying to keep the guests happy, make sure people have something to eat, something to drink. And Jesus says, oh, you servants, go fill up these six stone water jars without any explanation. It's like, okay, uh, does Jesus just want us to run an errand for him? I mean, does he need a bath? I mean, what's, why is he telling us to do this in the midst of this crisis? And again, this is no small amount of work. I mean, these are six, you know, 20 to 30 gallon containers. I mean, it would take you or I a long time to fill up six containers of 20 or 30 gallons from a tap. They've got to go drag these things out to a well and fill them up. But they obey. As Mary said, you know, do whatever he tells you. So they go and they return with the jars, John tells us, full to the brim. Jesus says, take some out of the jars and bring it to the master of the feast. This is where we pick it up in verse 9. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to everyone, everyone who serves the good wine, everyone serves the good wine first, but, but when the people have drunk freely, and then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And then John adds this little comment at the end. And this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee that manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And then this is where the story ends. I mean, the next verse goes on to another moment in Jesus' life. Jesus has just created a massive amount of the best wine that any of this wedding party had ever tasted. And he turned the, gri- the groom into a-, a hero and saved him from the worst embarrassment of his life, probably. But, but what does all this mean? I mean, what does this story mean? How does this show us who Jesus is? And, and I wonder if John, you know, the author of the gospel, and Mary, Jesus' mother, ever reminisced about this moment after Jesus death uh, and resurrection and ascension, you know, because on the cross, Jesus says to Mary, you know, this John is now your son. John's going to be the one who takes care of you. And so, you know, we know from church tradition that, that John and Mary, uh, John provided for her the rest of, of her life. And so I wonder if they ever sat around after Jesus had ascended and they re- reminisced and thought about this moment. Do you remember that time at that wedding when Jesus turned all that water into wine? What did, what did that mean? How does the story reveal who Jesus is? Uh, How does it reveal what he's come to do and how he makes it possible? Well, who we have seen Jesus to be so far in this story is that we have seen Jesus to be the master of the feast. I mean, how do we picture Jesus at this party? He's not frowning in the corner. He's not keeping track of how many drinks everyone's had. He's not seeing if anyone's laughing too hard or, or having too much fun. Not even close this story reveals that Jesus is the true master of the feast. Some of us reject Jesus or refuse to submit to Jesus because we think that this will ruin our fun. 
that, that if somehow we were to really follow Christ, that, that we'd end up like Ned Flanders, right? That, that that's what somehow real disciples end up looking like. And let me tell you, there are lots of reasons to reject Jesus. I mean, there are lots of reasons to reject Jesus, but the f- not being fun, not being full of life and joy is not one of them. That's not one of them. I mean, when Jesus shows up at a party, it instantly gets better. I mean, when this wine is brought to the master of the feast in, in the story, I mean, he can't believe the quality of the wine. You can just imagine this sort of first century uh, sommelier basking in the color and the bouquet and the taste and the, the finish of this wine. It was unbelievable. And he immediately realizes this was not the stuff that they were serving a half hour before ago, before when it ran out. This is something new. This is something better. Jesus is something new and better. But not only does Jesus not squimp, uh, skimp on the quality of the wine, he certainly holds nothing back when it comes to the quantity of the wine either. When you th- I did the math on this. 30, if you take 30 gallons, jugs, six of them, that works out to like a little over 900 bottles of wine. And this is a lot of wine. This is an abundance of wine. And actually some scholars even think based on some of the language in the text that, that maybe he didn't just turn the water that was in the jars into the wine, but actually he turned the, the well itself into wine. I mean, talk about an open bar, right? I mean, this is, I, I kind of want to believe that was the interpretation of the text. But I mean, either way, this is a massive amount of the best wine. This is, this is who Jesus is who holds nothing back, who gives freely the best to his people. See, everyone is blown away by the quality and the quantity of the wine, but only a few really see the sign. You know, the master of the feast doesn't know. He doesn't even know where this came from. The servants know where it's come from, but they don't really understand what's happening. It's only the disciples at the end who see Jesus' glory revealed in this moment and believe. They saw this as an invitation to know who Jesus was, to get to know to the one who promises life and life abundantly. They get their first sort of whiff of the glory of Jesus, and they only want to know more. You see, these signs all throughout the gospel, they're performed in order to strengthen our faith in Jesus, not to just bring a comfort into our lives. And so now God revealing glory through signs is actually nothing new. And it usually comes at moments when he's about to do something new. So if you remember back, you know, very long time ago this year, back in the beginning of the year, we looked at the book of Exodus. And God performs all these amazing signs through Moses, if you remember, as a prelude to God delivering his people out of Egypt, rescuing them out of Egypt. Here, Jesus is performing signs as a prelude to his rescue of people from sin and sadness. This is an anticipation what's coming. So therefore, because Jesus is the master of the feast, Christians have a new kind of joy. Because Jesus is the master of the feast, Christians have a new kind of joy. And and what is joy? It's one of those things that's so tough to define. And I I always, how do you describe joy? And I I never quite know how to, but but I always know when I feel it, and I, I know when I've been in the presence of someone who has it, um, it's, it's different than simple pleasure or feeling good, although that pleasure and feeling good certainly point to it. But, but even sadness, especially if you read some of, of C.S. Lewis's work, even sadness can point us to joy. 
I think joy is what we experience when we know that our deepest longings, our most painful hurts, our greatest hopes are finding a place of meaning and healing and fulfillment. See, joy is about knowing and being known. It's not about having everything perfect, but, but joy is marked by gladness and gratitude, by a quick smile, a slow temper. And all throughout John's gospel, joy is an important theme. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus prays for his followers in John chapter 17, he prays this, he prays to his father and he says, would they have the joy that I have? Would they be filled with my joy? Jesus' desire is that we would be filled with his sword, the sword of joy that turns water into 900 bottles of the best wine that anyone has ever tasted. Is that you? I mean, are you a joyful person full of that kind of joy? Or are you more of a a kind of a Debbie Downer who is constantly criticizing, critiquing, complaining? really the test is what would the people closest to you say? (laughs) Those are the ones, you know, talk to your best friend, talk to your spouse. They're the ones who will give you a good read on that. See, Jesus doesn't say that we should just always smile and act happy. That's what the Jesus in the video said. (laughs) He doesn't call us to a life of always smiling and acting happy. We live in a broken world where sin kills and destroys in a thousand different ways. And Jesus is not naive about that. He is going to go into the fury of the cross and experience the the full weight of sin and suffering. Jesus knows what it is to suffer and lament. And yet listen to what he says in John chapter 16 verse 20 as he comforts his disciples in the face of his impending betrayal and death. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And then he says, your sorrow, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. We will experience sorrow, but joy is the outcome of these things in Christ. And the question is, if your life is not, not characterized by joy, you've got to ask yourself, have, have I really met the master of the feast? If there isn't this kind of undercurrent of, of deep abiding joy. It doesn't mean you're always happy. It doesn't mean you always have a smile on your face. But if there's not this deep undercurrent of joy, have I really met the master of the feast? You know, our celebration, you know, whether or not we were wine drinkers, ought to be marked with a quality and quantity of hospitality and food and drink and family and friends and neighbors and joy. So who is Jesus? (laughs) Jesus is the master of the feast who has given Christians a new kind of joy. But what has Jesus come to do? Um, Did he come to teach? To show us how to live? To to give us good morals, um, to die on the cross for our sin. I mean, all those are, are good answers. All of them are, are right answers. He came to do all those things, but, but there's so much more. And Jesus came to do even more than that. And we see something even unique here in this text about what Jesus came to do. What do you think that Jesus was thinking about during this wedding? 
as he's sitting at this wedding celebration, what do you think that he was thinking about? And Pastor Tim Keller helped me see something in this text that I hadn't seen before. He points out that Jesus is, is likely thinking about at this wedding here what, what every one of us, when we're single, thinks about when we're at a wedding. Right? When we're single, we're at a wedding. What You can't help but think at some point during the wedding about what, your own wedding. Will, will I have a wedding someday? What will it be like? We can't help think of our own wedding. I think Jesus is likely at this wedding thinking about his own wedding. It's coming at the end of the time. And it becomes evident in verse 4 because when Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, remember that hour, he's not talking about my hour, hour has not yet come to do a miracle. Uh, clearly he's about to do a miracle. He's saying my hour has not yet come. The hour of my wedding, the hour of my death, which prepares a bride for me to marry, hasn't yet come. He's thinking of his own wedding. You see, why did Jesus come? You could say one of the reasons that Jesus came is to get married, to come for his bride. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, let me, let me explain that, all throughout the Old Testament, God not only wants to relate to his people as a, as a king to his subjects or as a shepherd to sheep or even as a father to children, one of the predominant metaphors that pictures Jesus, that God's relationship to his people in the Old Testament is the relationship of a husband and wife. God wants to relate to his people with the kind of intimacy that can only be approximated by marriage. In fact, later on in John chapter 3, the next chapter on, John the Baptist, different than John the Apostle, John the Baptist will say this about Jesus. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Basically, John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one who has come for his people. He is the great groom that's, who has been longing to marry the bride of his people. And you see, therefore, because Jesus came as the bridegroom, Christians can have a new kind of intimacy. And I remember when I was in middle school, you know, when everyone would, when I, you know, we'd always put, you know, be annoying to people and say, whenever someone would say, oh, I, I love something, I love these new shoes, you know, what would you say? Well, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it, right? I mean, that was, you ever do this clip, right? But we, we say that because we, you know, there's implicitly in that this picture of the, the highest expression of kind of, of love and giving yourself to another person is, is marriage, you see, Jesus doesn't just want to rescue you. He doesn't just want to clean you up. He doesn't just want to help you through a tough spot. No, Jesus loves you so much, so passionately that he desires a kind of relationship with you, the kind of unity and intimacy that, that can only be approximated by marriage. Jesus loves you that much. This isn't just about him kind of cleaning you up and sending you on your way. He wants to know you like a husband knows a wife. And because he loves us this much, it means he cares about everything in our lives, even the small things. One of the things I love that comes out in this text is I think we tend to assume that God doesn't know about our issues because it's so fresh to us. We've just realized that there's a crisis going on. And two, that, that God doesn't care about our issues because a lot of times they just seem too small. But this text just, just undercuts all of those assumptions. One, Jesus knows about the crisis at this wedding. He knows what's going on. And nothing's too small 
for him, right? I mean, this is a big deal socially, right, that the wine is run out, but no one's going to die. I mean, this isn't a life and death moment at this party. It's like, well, so the party ends a few days early. I mean, but Jesus cared about providing wine so the wedding could keep going on. He cares about the small things in your life. Go to him with the small things. When you think about this, you know, Who's the one person that you go to with all the small details in your life? I mean, if you're married, it's your spouse, right? The spouse is the one person that nothing is too small to complain about, to ask about, to ask for help with. They're the one person you can go to with even the tiniest things. That's the kind of relationship that that Jesus has with his people. Go to him with the small things. The good news this morning is that whether you're single or married, happily or unhappily, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, that Jesus is the one to whom all your longings for intimacy, for knowing and being known, they all point to him. You see, every one of us was made to be in that kind of a relationship with Christ. And this is actually why Jesus says in the Gospels that, that in the resurrection, that in the new heavens and the new earth, that people are neither married nor given in marriage because at that time in the new heavens and the new earth, that marriage is complete. The wedding supper of the Lamb has happened, that, that God's people have been wed to him. So, so what does it look like to, to be married to Jesus, to, to anticipate this intimacy Well, what does any marriage change in our life, right? I mean, it changes our priorities, it changes our schedules, it changes our ambition, it changes everything. But but also, it's a delight, right? I mean, it's it's a delight. You'll do anything to be near the beloved. In fact, Rachel and I are celebrating our our third anniversary uh, this week, our third year of being married together. And just thinking back, especially to those early days, I mean, just the simple joy of waking up in the same bed or, or doing chores or running errands together. I mean, just the simple delight of being with the beloved changes everything. So we've seen who Jesus is. He's the master of the feast. We've seen what he's come to do to bring this bride to himself. Now we need to ask, how does he make it possible as we close? We see when Jesus' mother asks him, tells him about this wine that's run out, Again, Jesus is probably thinking about what it's going to cost for him to provide the wine at his own wedding. Because how does Jesus make his wedding to sinners possible? It's only through the wine of his blood. You see, Jesus makes it possible for us to come to him through the new rite of purification. You remember those six stone jars were for? They were for the Jewish rites of purification. But water could only symbolically cleanse the outside of a person. But only the blood of Jesus can truly transform us internally. Jesus is the purification to which those jars of water and cleansing rituals had always pointed. They were always pointing to the one who would come give himself completely, who would hold nothing back to redeem his people. And therefore, because of this new purification that Jesus offers, Christians have a new kind of wholeness. A new kind of wholeness that's not based on external conformity to rules, but on an internal transformation that's brought about by relationship. A wholeness that's not based on our doing, but on our being in Christ. And so the question for us is, how do we get that wholeness 
And the answer is in John chapter 2, verse 11, that final verse. Let's just read it again. This was the first of his signs, and Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it manifested his glory. And look at that last sentence. And his disciples believed in him. See, we receive the rescue and wholeness that Jesus offers simply by believing. By believing in him, by trusting in his work on our behalf, and by giving up on trying to be good enough on our own. Jesus is the one who makes you good enough. Weddings are great moments because they tell a great story. Weddings are great moments because they tell a great story. Um, as a pastor, I always say when I'm doing weddings, I always have the, the, the best seat in the house. And I, when I'm doing weddings in this building, I stand right here at the bottom of these steps with the groom next to me. And I watch out that door together as a bride walks out. And there's just the moment of joy and excitement and energy. And I just stand here and I watch this groom and this bride as their eyes meet as they walk down the aisle. See, Scripture begins with a wedding between a man and a woman in Genesis 2, and it ends in Revelation 21 with the marriage of heaven and earth, with the marriage of God and his people. The story is bookended by a wedding. Weddings tell the story of the Bible. You see, Jesus is the new and better jar of purification. He's the new and better bridegroom. He's the new and better wine. Jesus is the new and better master of the feast. And so this morning, as we come to the communion table, we say to all the world that I am lost, that I am in desperate need of cleansing and wholeness, and I know that I'm helpless to attain that for myself. And so as I receive these elements in communion, I believe in, I trust in, I rejoice in Jesus who rescues me completely and brings me to himself. And so you know, we celebrate communion each week here at the Brookside campus, and you don't have to be a member uh, of the Brookside campus or of Christ's community to celebrate with us. Um, if you have placed your trust in Christ, if you have said, I have no hope except for him, then you are welcome at the table. And of course, uh, you're always welcome to just remain seated in this time or um, to use this time to reflect and to pray. You don't have to come forward. Um, but when you do come, comes in groups of, of four or five and gather around uh, the, and take the bread and dip it in the juice and partake together. And there's four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the front and two in the back. And this one in the back has gluten-free communion elements available. Um, know that the aisles are kind of narrow, so, you know, we've, it's sometimes a little crowded to get in and out. But we're used to that here. It's okay if you have to bump into someone. Um, take your time and, and don't feel rushed. And also, you know, during our communion time, following uh, communion time, that first song afterwards, I'm going to be available to pray um, with you. If there's something that you would like prayer for even this morning, um, I'll just be right uh, off to the side here and would love to pray with you uh, this morning during communion. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I said, take, eat of it, all of you. And in the same way, after he'd given thanks, he took the cup, and he said, this 
is the cup of the covenant of my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So do this in remembrance of me. So come now to the Lord's table and taste and touch the good news of the gospel.